0: Grab your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to the book of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback black Bible under the chair in front of you or underneath you. You can grab that Bible, and if you're using that one, we'll be on page 872. As we continue in the book of Luke together this morning, we're picking up right where we left off last week. Ever since chapter 9... Luke told us there in chapter 9 that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem, and since that point, Jesus has been journeying uh, on a journey that's going to lead him to the cross at Calvary. And all along the way, as as Jesus is traveling, he's been teaching and talking and and ministering to all kinds of people. He's been with his disciples, both the inner core of the Twelve, but also that larger gathering of faithful followers. He's been with the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers the, who, who've been curious about him and, and his ministry and what he's saying, but also have been growing more and more hostile to him. He's been with large crowds of people, sometimes even massive crowds of people who've been attracted by his teaching, his miracles, and his healings. But all along the way, regardless of who Jesus has been with, Jesus has been teaching. And since the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus has had this large crowd that numbered in the thousands there with him and his disciples as he taught. And in fact, that crowd's presence has even brought up confusion from time to time. Last last week, we saw Peter come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, is this parable for us or for everyone? And as Jesus responded, we, we saw that the answer was yes. Yes, that parable was for the disciples, but it was also for everyone what we saw was that each and every one of us needs to be ready to meet Jesus face-to-face at his second coming. But as we continue in the text, Jesus is going to talk about why he came in the first place. And as Jesus lays out the mission that he is on, in terms that can be a little bit unexpected, yet again, what we're going to see is that when we encounter Jesus, his mission and his message calls forth a response from us. So with that in mind, let's dive right in. Luke chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 49, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blow and you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret this present time. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Elsewhere in scripture we read that the grass withers, that the flower falls, but that the word of the Lord remains forever and this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us. We thank you for Jesus, for his teaching. Holy Spirit, as we look to this passage of Luke chapter 12, I ask that you would help us to receive what Jesus is saying, to understand it and apply it to our lives. Help us to take hold of the truths that we're presented with. Help us to respond appropriately to what we hear that we might live every day to honor and glorify you. Speak to us now. We, We ask, we need your help with this. It's in your beautiful name that I pray. Amen. The more you read and study your Bible, the more you'll discover that every now and then, there are times where, as we're reading our Bibles, what we come across is hard. The biblical text may confront you with with a hard truth. Or maybe what is written is just hard for us to understand. Just about everybody who's read through the book of Revelation or has read through the book of Job or even parts of the book of Daniel, uh, they know that this is true. Sometimes when we're reading our Bibles, the text we're presented with is hard. And as we're looking at these 11 verses, on first reading, I would contend that they fall into that camp. Jesus says a few things here that seem hard to understand. In verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. In verse 51, he tells us that he came to bring division. And then after saying these things, he uses an analogy from nature. And then a parable that almost doesn't even feel like it's a parable. And as we read these 11 verses, at first glance, they seem hard. After all, the scriptures foretold that the promised Savior, the promised Messiah would be, among other things, the Prince of Peace. And when Jesus was born, what did the angels announce? They they announced peace on earth. Even Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room, in the Gospel of John, he tells them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. But here, Jesus says, do you think I've come to give peace on the earth? No! No! I tell you, but rather, division. This feels like a hard passage of Scripture. Even as I studied and prepared for today, I, I struggled at first. But the more I read it, the, the more I looked at it, the more I recognized that this isn't as hard as it first appears. You know, last week we, we saw Jesus teaching about our need to be prepared to meet him as at his second coming And as he continues today, he's going to tell us why he came in the first place, which is going to lead him to call the crowd that he's speaking to to repent of their sin and follow him in the text we're going to look at next week. And so what Luke is presenting us with here are some truths that we need to embrace and respond to. So the main idea of of these 11 verses, the main point that they are teaching us is that Jesus came to bring judgment and salvation Those are the truths that we need to embrace. But then there's this question that we need to wrestle with. How will you respond to him? That's what we're being taught right here. Luke wants us to wrestle with that question, and so does Jesus. Jesus is teaching us here why he came and, and what he was going to accomplish, and as he does, he wants us to respond. So the main idea of this passage is pretty straightforward. Jesus came to bring judgment and salvation. How will you respond to him? That's our main idea. That's what we're going to see in this text. Now, let me show you as we look to it. As Jesus begins his discussion there in verse 49, he begins by saying, I came to cast fire on the earth. And obviously, this is a a bold and unexpected statement. But while it might feel a little bit out of character for what we've seen in and what we've heard from Jesus, this really shouldn't. This is nothing new. Back in chapter 3, as John the Baptist was preaching and preparing the way for Jesus, he said that part of Jesus' mission was to gather the wheat into his barns. But, John said, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Fire represents divine judgment. In fact, we see Luke used it that way throughout his gospel. We see it even in the book of Acts, which if you didn't know, Luke wrote also. And here Jesus is saying, I came to do that. Jesus came to bring judgment. But not only is he saying that that's why he came, not, not only is he saying, I came to cast fire on the earth, but then he adds on, and would that it were already kindled. And as he says that, we can begin to sense the difficulty with this text again. Because often when we think about Jesus, we see him coming in love and providing grace and, and mercy for us. And he does. But as we read this, it sounds like Jesus has this urgency, this desire to see judgment implemented as if it was already happening. And he does. That sense is correct. That's what he's saying. But here's where we have the disconnect. When we think about judgment, we almost always think about judgment in a negative light. But what we need to remember is that judgment is only a bad thing if you're going to be convicted. Judgment is only a bad thing if the verdict is against you. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Like, um, imagine you've been charged with a crime, right? And you're innocent, right? You've been charged with a crime, so the police come and they arrest you and they take you to jail and you are brought into court. You have that preliminary hearing where they set the trial date. And then you go to court for your actual hearing and and there in the court, the, the prosecutor brings the case, right? They show the evidence, they make the argument, and then your defense attorney steps forward and he presents the defense. And once that's completed, the judge dismisses the jury to go and deliberate. And then the, the jury, they come to their verdict. They come back into the courtroom and they announce their verdict and their verdict is that you're not guilty. Now, now, if that's the case, the jury has made a judgment and that judgment is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. That judgment means that justice has been served. That judgment for you, it means freedom. It means a return to everyday life, right? Now, if you're guilty and you're convicted and you're sentenced, that changes things, right? Then you dread judgment. But the idea of facing judgment, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. We ought to understand that. Because the judgment that Jesus is bringing is a judgment with both sides of this coin. It's a judgment that will bring eternal damnation for unrepentant, unatoned for sin. But it's also a judgment that will bring eternal life to everyone who repents and believes. It will restore a world that is broken by sin. It will at last bring justice and equity to the earth. And that's why Jesus wants this to happen so urgently. This is the reason that he was telling us to be prepared to meet him face to face last week. But in order for that to happen... First, Jesus has a mission to accomplish. I want you to take a look at the first half of verse 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, it's important to recognize that Jesus isn't talking about his baptism by John the Baptist down at the Jordan River right here. We saw that back in Luke chapter 3. This is a different baptism. This is one that he has yet to... undergo as he is speaking to those crowds. And what's happening here is is Jesus is using a metaphor to describe what he's about to experience when he gets to Jerusalem. He, He takes the image of being plunged beneath the waters in baptism, you know, we're plunged beneath. He takes that image and then he ties that to a frequently understood picture of God's judgment You see, in the Old Testament, God's judgment is often pictured as as being plunged beneath this overwhelming flood. And so here, the, the picture that Jesus is painting, the metaphor that he's using here, is one where he's being plunged beneath the waters. He's being completely inundated with God's judgment. So as Jesus talks about this baptism that he must be baptized with, what he's talking about here is his crucifixion at Golgotha and everything that goes with it. He's talking about that moment where God will pour out all of his wrath for our sin on him. But as he talks about this, I want you to see what he says immediately after it. Look at verse 50 again. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. As Jesus looks forward to the cross, knowing full well what comes before that, what comes with that, as, as he looks eyes wide open at the sacrifice that he's about to make, he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That word distressed there in the Greek is sinecho It means to seize, to confine, to hold together. Jesus' mind was seized by what he was about to accomplish. Has that ever happened to you? Like you've got something to do and that's all you can think about until you get it done. Tama will tell you that with me, it's just me being stubborn. Um, But often, when I start a project, especially if it's a project outside, like a project in the barn or in my shop, if if I start a project often, I'm going to keep going until it's completely done. Even if it takes twice as long, even if I'm exhausted, I'll I'll get so fixated on this one thing that I need to accomplish that I think of nothing else. I, I don't pay attention to time. I don't pay attention to the calendar for the family. All I focus on is this one thing until it is done. I get completely fixated on getting the job done, on what I'm working on. And, and so that's all I'll look at. And that's what Jesus is communicating here. His entire focus, his entire mind was completely fixated on and governed by the mission he had to accomplish. And that mission was to bring salvation to you and me. Jesus came to bring salvation. And as he's talking here, what we ought to be able to see is that he was eager to do it. He was eager to head to the cross. He didn't stumble into it. He didn't land there accidentally. He was completely governed by this idea that he was going to Calvary. He was going to pay the price for our sin because Jesus came to bring salvation. That's what he's telling us here. And again, he was eager to do it do you, do you recognize that jesus didn't go to the cross begrudgingly he went voluntarily he went eagerly he went because he loves you and he wanted to reconcile you to god and the only way to completely atone for sin was to lay his perfect like life down in exchange for yours Everything that he came to accomplish that can be wrapped up in these first two verses. Jesus came to bring judgment and salvation. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to teach good morals. He didn't come to make your life better. He he didn't come to give you health and wealth and, and blessings and prosperity. Jesus came to save your soul. He came to reconcile you to God. He came to bring judgment that would restore a world that is broken by sin. And he was eager to do it. This is the love that Jesus had for us. That he would willingly, eagerly charge headlong to the cross in order that we might be reconciled to God. That he would race to save us, sinners in open rebellion against him. Don't miss that. This is why Jesus came. These are the two truths of this passage that we need to embrace. Jesus came to bring judgment and salvation. But as Jesus continues to teach and to press for a response, what what he's going to do is highlight some of the reasons why we don't respond the way that we ought to. And the first reason he gives is that we know that a decision to follow him often brings division. Take a look. Beginning at verse 51, Jesus says, Do you think that I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, this is yet another spot where this text starts to get hard for us at first glance, because it feels like it's out of place with what the rest of Scripture teaches us about Jesus. But, but again, it's not. And to remember that, all we have to do is go back to the beginning of the book. All we have to do is look back to chapter 2 when, when Jesus was presented at the temple. We talked about this last February. Remember, Mary and Joseph, they bring Jesus to the temple. They present him there, and and as they're walking up, this man, Simeon, walks up, and he takes baby Jesus into his arms, and he blesses the Lord, and then he blesses Mary and Joseph, and then after he's done that, he turns to Mary, and he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And as we looked at that passage of Luke just over a year ago, I told you that Simeon was making it clear to Mary and to everyone around that could hear that Jesus' mission would bring the vision. We saw that the ministry of Jesus would show where hearts really were before God. Some would oppose Jesus and his ministry because their hearts were opposed to God. Some would support and celebrate his ministry because their hearts were aligned with God. We saw that when you encounter Jesus, you are going to choose to either follow him or walk away. And if you choose to follow him, Simeon was helping us to see that that there will be division. Because the reality is, when Jesus is your Lord, He's going to ask you and call you to live differently than the world around you. He's going to call you to die to self. He's going to call you to die to the passions and lusts of your sinful nature. He's going to call you to live for him. And that kind of living stands in complete opposition to the way the world is calling us to live today. Jesus calls us into a better life a better morality, a better sexual ethic, a a better worldview, a better love, a better way of living than the world around us wants us to live. And when we live like Jesus is calling us to live, we are going to experience opposition to that. We know that if we're faithful to follow Jesus, we're going to be called names. We're going to be treated differently. There will be a cost. But the reality is Jesus' ministry, his his mission, it brings division. And as we're confronted with that, sometimes that seems too hard. Sometimes that kind of division seems like too great a cost, especially when we recognize that that kind of division can happen even within our own family. Jesus borrows language from the prophet Micah, from Micah chapter 7, to help us see that. Back in the book of Micah, in chapter 7, the the prophet has been lamenting over the division and brokenness of the world around him as he waits for the salvation of the Lord. And and then in Micah chapter 7, verse 6, he says, for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house that's the picture of division that jesus is talking about and as jesus said those words to that crowd their minds would have gone racing to micah chapter 7 the same way your mind goes racing to john 316 if i say for god so loved the world Right, Because when you know a passage of scripture, when when you've got that planted in your mind and you hear part of it, your mind goes racing. It just happened to about, I'd say, 90% of the room. I said, for God so loved the world. And your brain tuned me out for a second and said that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Right? We do that. We naturally do that. And that's what's happening with this crowd right here. These people would have known the words of the prophet. And so as Jesus quotes the words of the prophet Micah to them, they go racing to those words. And that's important to recognize because Jesus doesn't quote the entire passage. He only quotes part of it, not all. You see, the prophet Micah continues in verse 7, and he says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, why does that matter? It matters because Jesus is pointing out that while our allegiance to to him may cause division, even within our own families, even then, we can turn to the Lord. Our loyalty to Christ and to the call that he places on our lives, the call to follow him, it will create division, even in our families. But still, we must respond to the offer of salvation. Now, that doesn't mean we just give up on our family. That doesn't mean we don't do everything in our power to bring our family members, our friends, those people that we're divided from, to know and love and follow Jesus. We absolutely do. But the reality is, if you make a decision to follow Jesus, it's going to bring some division. Don't let that stop you from living for Jesus. Don't let that stop you from following him. Respond to the offer of salvation. That's what we're seeing here. And as we see that, maybe you need to pause and ask yourself Is it? Is this stopping me from going all in with Jesus? Is the fear of how others are going to respond when they learn that I've decided to repent of my sin and place my faith in him, is that fear of how they're going to respond stopping me from surrendering everything to Jesus? If it is, consider what Jesus is saying here. Respond to Jesus. Live for him. But as we continue, then Jesus gives us another reason why we may not respond to him. Take a look, starting at verse 54. Luke tells us, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The second reason why you may not respond to Jesus is that you don't recognize where you are. That's what Jesus is trying to help them see right here. You don't recognize where you are. And to highlight this, Jesus uses an analogy from nature that everyone living in Israel would have understood. He talks about the weather. This is something I think if you've lived in one place long enough, you you can understand this, right? So if you're in Israel... Out to the west of Israel, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. And what happens is is that as water vapor from the Mediterranean Sea evaporates, it, it forms into clouds in the sky. And then these western winds will blow those clouds over the dry land where the air is warmer. And as that air is warmer, that water vapor condenses until it's too heavy to stay aloft. And so it falls like rain. So if you're living in Israel, you can look out to the west and you see a cloud out in the west and you know, hey, rain is coming. And it's the same thing with the wind and the heat, right? Because south of Israel, you've got the Sinai Desert. And so what happens is if you've got a south wind, it's bringing that hot air from the desert into Israel, raising the temperature all around Israel. And, And Jesus is telling them, you guys know how to do this. You know how to interpret the weather around you, and yet you're missing things that are way more important than that. They could look at nature and see and understand the signs And know what was going to happen, but they couldn't see what was going on spiritually. They couldn't see and read the signs that were all around them. Now, looking back for us, it's easy to see the cycle that Israel was in. Right? Like God would give his people a command. And they'd agree and obey for a while. But then slowly they'd start to drift away. Their sin would increase. And so God would send prophets. And the prophets would come to call them back. But instead of listening to the prophets, they killed the prophets and their sin problem got worse. And so then God would punish them. And and in that punishment, they'd awake from their slumber. They'd repent and they'd begin to live faithfully and, and worship rightly before God. But only for a time. And then slowly, the cycle would repeat again. On their own, they were never able to be righteous and holy the way that God had called them to be righteous and holy. They needed a savior, and they couldn't see it. So Jesus is calling them out. You don't recognize where you are. You don't know. You don't see that you need a Savior. And church, we have the same problem. This is just as true for us. Look at the world around you. Everything about our world is crying out that we need a Savior. Everyone, whether you're a believer or not, you can see the brokenness that is all around us. And so what do we do? We know that there's this brokenness all around us, and so what do we do? We try to fix it on our own. We we try to remake ourselves in our own image. We try to fix this brokenness with work or with toys or with achievements or with drugs or alcohol, with self help books or invented identities. And every time we do, every time we think, this time, whatever this is, this is going to fix our problem and it's all going to be good. We try to fix our problems ourselves. And yet, every time that we do, we find that our solution has failed. We find ourselves right where we started. Everything about our world is crying out that we need a savior. And we completely miss the signs. You don't recognize where you are. And so you don't respond. But Jesus is pressing us here to see the signs and respond. See where you are. See that you cannot fix your sin problem on your own. See that you need the Savior who is standing there offering you life, offering you salvation. All you have to do is repent and believe. And so again, maybe we need to just stop for a second and and you need to ask yourself some questions. Can you see where you're at? Can you see the cycle you're in? Can you see all the ways that you've attempted to fix your brokenness have failed and you're right where you've started? Can you see that you need a savior and that you can't do this yourself? Jesus is pressing us here to see that, to stop trying to save ourselves, to respond to him. Jesus gives us these reasons why we don't respond, and then he uses this parable that, that almost feels like it's not even a parable to press us to respond wisely. I want you to see this. So, so look, at, look at the text, starting at verse 57. Jesus says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? You go with your accuser, as you go with your accuser, Before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now, as Jesus uses this parable to make his point, it's important to recognize that the underlying presumption of this parable is that you are guilty. You're guilty. If you go to the judge with this person who's accusing you, you're going to be found guilty. You're going to be thrown in prison until you've paid every last cent. And so what Jesus is saying here is that while you have a chance, before you get to court, settle. Make it right before he puts you in front of the judge, because when you stand in front of that judge, you will be found guilty, and the judge is going to call the bailiff, and the bailiff is going to throw handcuffs on your wrist. He's going to haul you off to prison. They're going to throw you in that cell. They're going to slam the door, lock it with a key, throw away the key, and you will not get out until you've paid back every last cent. And by the way, how are you going to pay it back when you're locked up in prison? You can't. You're not able to pay, and that's the point. You see, we need Jesus to go through this baptism that he's just talked about. Because he's the judge, but he's also our defense attorney. And if we respond wisely, if we respond to our sin by repenting of our sin, by receiving the free gift that comes when we place our faith and trust in his finished work, when we stand before the judge, our defense attorney is gonna say, your honor, he's guilty, but I've already paid the price for him. So set him free. You've already poured out your wrath on me in his place. I suffered and died in his place on the cross. I've absorbed his wrath and you accepted my sacrifice by raising me in victory over sin and death. And so now there's no more wrath to be poured out. His sins have been atoned for. The price has been paid. Your honor set him free. That's the message that Jesus has for us here. That's what Jesus is pressing us to see. So we must respond wisely regardless of how the world responds. The whole point of the parable is that right now you have the opportunity in front of you to receive forgiveness. Right now you have the opportunity in front of you to be made right with God. But the day will come when it will be too late. The day will come when you're standing before that judge. And so right now, as you're hearing the message, respond wisely. If you've never fully repented of your sin and surrendered your life to Christ, maybe you've been waiting in. You know, you're you're over there and you're just kind of sticking your toe in the water. Maybe for years you've been playing the game By by sheer force of will, you're projecting everything, what it looks like to be a good Christian by your own strength, but you've never actually repented. You've never surrendered your life. Jesus isn't sitting on the throne. Hear the call that's being made. Repent and believe. Jesus came to give you life and hope. Repent of your sin. Come follow him. Listen, Jesus isn't calling you into a religion. He's calling you into a relationship. He's calling you in to live as a disciple where you follow him daily, where you walk with him daily, where you live for him daily. So hear the call and respond wisely. What Jesus is saying in these 11 verses may at first glance seem hard but as we've worked to unpack them what i what i hope that you've begun to see is, is that while they may seem hard they're a plea from jesus's heart they're a plea from his love for you to respond with repentance and faith and obedience jesus came to bring judgment and salvation so how will you respond to him My prayer is that today, like to echo the words of Hebrews, if you hear his voice, you won't harden your heart. My prayer is that if you've not fully surrendered and you're hearing this gospel message today, you will respond with repentance and faith. Because one day you're gonna stand before the judge. That's what Jesus came to bring. He came to bring judgment. But he also came to bring salvation. So how will you respond? Can we pray? Lord, we thank you for hard words. We thank you for words that though difficult to hear, express so clearly your love for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you lived a perfect life, that you died a sinner's death in our place for our sin. And as we hear these words, we ask that you would help us to respond Every single day with faith, with repentance, with obedience. Help us not to fear judgment because we know where our eternity lies. Help us to look forward with joy to the day when you will return. Help us to look forward with joy to that day where we will stand face to face with you and we'll hear you plead our case and we begin eternity reconciled to you. If you're here today and you are hearing this gospel message, this good news message, that though our sin separates us from God, Jesus came and he paid the price for our sin. He came and reconciled us to God by dying on the cross in our place for our sin. If you're hearing that message and you've never fully surrendered your life to Christ, you've never repented of your sin, you've never placed your faith in the work that was completed at Calvary, I'd like to give you the opportunity to do that. If you're feeling that draw right now, and even as you hear me talking, there's this angst in your heart. It's like, what are people going to think? How are people going to respond? I want you to know that draw is not me. That's the Holy Spirit calling you in, asking you to respond. And so if that's you today, I want to give you the opportunity. Just raise your hand right now. I don't see anybody. That's okay. If raising your hand in a room full of people makes you uncomfortable and you're feeling that draw, come grab me after the service. Let's talk. Just the two of us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the invitation that you have given us. We ask that you would help us to live it out every single day. We ask that you would work in and through us. Holy Spirit, shape us more into the image of Christ. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen.